X-ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Friday, April 9th. Today, back in the day, in 1860, the earliest recording of the human voice was captured. Edouard Léon, Scott de Martinville, a French bookseller by trade, was inspired to invent a machine that reproduced the functions of the human ear. He patented the phonautograph in 1857. The machine's purpose was to transcribe sound waves on the paper in order to visually study sound amplitude and frequency. De Martinville recorded himself singing Eau Claire de la Lune on April 9, 1860. But it wasn't until 17 years later that anyone realized that you could play back these recordings. Charles Crow figured out how to engrave the graphical recording taken by the phonograph onto a piece of metal to create a playable groove. Before Crow could publicize his announcement, Thomas Edison had revealed the phonograph, making Crow and de Martinville's inventions pretty much obsolete. 150 years later, de Martinville's original phonograph recordings were discovered among his papers by a team of audio historians. Computer scanning technology allowed the recordings to be played back for the first time to the public in 2008. Today, back in the day in 1947, the first Freedom Ride began their two-week-long journey through the South. The Freedom Riders were a group of civil rights activists challenging interstate bus segregation laws in the American South. Made up originally of eight white men and eight black men from the Congress of Racial Equity, or CORE, the trip started in Washington, D.C. On the second day in Durham, North Carolina, a bus driver called the police on Bayard Rustin, a black Quaker activist with the Riders, when he refused to move to the back of the bus. Rustin was not arrested, and the Riders continued their trip the black Freedom Riders sitting in the front of the bus and the white Freedom Riders sitting in the back, or sometimes side by side, which was against state laws. On April 13th, two of the black riders were arrested for refusing to give up their seats, and two of the white riders were arrested for defending them. Three of them, including Rustin, were eventually sent to segregated chain gangs in 1949. 30 days for Rustin and 90 days for the white Freedom Riders. The Freedom Riders and their journey of reconciliation inspired later civil rights actions such as Rosa Parks' nonviolent protest, the Freedom Rides of 1960-61, to 61, and many others. Today, back in the day in 1910, Oregon's first plane took off. Aviation was all the rage in the first few decades of the 20th century, and the excitement reached Oregon, too. John Connor Burkhart and W.C. Crawford spent the winter of 1909 building their biplane airship, one of the first planes in the West. They were invited to present their plane at Will Lippmann's auto show in February of 1910, alongside a private plane owned by Portland businessman E. Henry Wemmy. Burkhart was an aviation and photography enthusiast and had been witness to some of the Wright brothers' early flight trials. Wemmy was competitive and spiteful of the Albany native and claimed that his plane would fly while Burkhart's wouldn't. 
For reasons unknown, Burkhart didn't want to fly his plane in Portland, and transportation issues meant that it took until April before he could get it back to Albany. Wemmy's plane had flown first a week earlier, but it wasn't made in Oregon, and therefore is slightly less today back in the day worthy. Burkhart did build the first airport in the Northwest in Albany, Goltra Field, where he flew his Katy did on ice skates. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Mark Carey, a moderator for the Climate Change and Indigenous Peoples Lecture. X-ray. First up, it's time for your local headlines. We've got a daily dose of data for you. According to the Oregon Health Authority, there were 678 new cases of COVID-19 in Oregon yesterday and five new deaths. To date, 2,439 Oregonians have died from the virus. COVID cases in 10 to 19-year-olds are on the rise. A recent study by the Lund Report revealed a nearly 50% increase in cases found in 10 to 19-year-olds. Simultaneously, the study found that cases in 20 to 50-year-olds are significantly decreasing. But health officials are not necessarily concerned by the rise and say the results of the Lund Report may be misleading. College students who have returned to school can get access COVID testing more easily, and they are more inclined to get tested because they are sharing spaces with other people. Many of these students are asymptomatic and probably wouldn't have sought out testing when they were still at home. Health officials also reminded people who may be concerned about the increase that COVID is rarely fatal in children and young adults. In fact, only two people below below the age of 20 have died from COVID in Oregon. The vast majority of young people recover within a few weeks. An Oregonian has petitioned for the recall of Senate Minority Leader Fred Girard. According to the petition statement, Girard acted incorrectly when, quote, faced with legislation that threatens the safety and financial stability of Oregonians. Malala resident Lavedra Newton submitted the prospective petition to recall Girard on Monday. Newton was frustrated to see Girard present during the March 25th Senate vote, which banned guns from the Capitol. According to Newton, Girard, who is a Republican, abdicated his duty by allowing the passage of the gun ban. Prior to the vote, GOP lawmakers had collectively decided to skip out on floor sessions to slow the bill's progress. Gerard was only one of six Republicans who were present at the vote, but his presence meant that the Senate reached quorum and could successfully pass the bill. On Tuesday, Gerard said he wasn't concerned about the petition. He implied that Newton would struggle to get enough signatures to force a recall election and said, quote, I just stood for election. In a three-way, I got 67%. If they want to spend a bunch of money trying to take me out, they're welcome to do it. Newton will need nearly 9,000 signatures from voters in Gerard's district to force a recall. And we have some good news. The Portland Art Museum will partially reopen on April 10th. The reopening will grant visitors access to all galleries, but main special rooms will still be closed. Visitors need to wear masks and physically distance, and there will be a staff wellness screening near the entrance. And if that wasn't enough good news, the entire museum will officially reopen on May 5th. At that time, the museum will also premiere the Ansel Adams in Our Time exhibit. 
The exhibition, which will stay at the museum until August 1st, will spotlight legendary photographer Ansel Adams. It will feature over 100 of his photo- photographs and, quote, trace the artist's development and maturation over five decades. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-ray. Now we'll hear DJ Ambush and Morgan Jones speak with environmental studies scholar Mark Carey. He will be a moderator for the Climate Change and Indigenous Peoples Lecture as part of the Environmental Justice Pathways Summit happening today and tomorrow. Here are Mark and Ambush and Morgan. Uh, Beyond Toxins and the Eugene NAACP are putting on the Environmental Justice Pathways Summit on April 9th and 10th. It's going to include lectures and workshops examining climate change and its impact on marginalized groups. Joining us now is Mark Carey, a moderator for the Climate Change and Indigenous Peoples Lecture. Carey is the director of the Environmental Studies Program at the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon. He is also a professor of history and environmental studies. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Oh. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk with you. Absolutely. Uh, can you tell us more about the Environmental Justice Pathway Summit and how it started? Yeah, this is a, uh, you know, this was going to start about a year ago, and of course the pandemic has postponed things and we've moved it to a virtual format now, mm-hmm. but this is a an event with the University of Oregon, Beyond Toxics is the main host here, a Eugene-based um, nonprofit organization, and the NAACP of Eugene and Springfield. And the idea is to bring together speakers, community members, students to think about environmental justice issues in as broad ways as we can to recognize different impacts on different groups of people and different types of people. Mm. So so there's a, it's an exciting series of, of speakers over two days. Excellent. Uh, who will be speaking at the Climate Change and Indigenous Peoples Lecture? So for for that one, that's the, the first keynote lecture. Um, that starts at noon. Um, online, of course, um, and that's going to be Sheila Watt-Cloutier, who is a, a Canadian Inuit activist mm-hmm. who has a long record of um, working for Indigenous human rights and climate change uh, um, in the Arctic in particular, but she's really speaks for a lot of different groups who are affected by climate change and human rights issues. I was going to say, she, she's someone who, um, Kathy Lynn, who's the co-director with me of the Climate Change and Indigenous Peoples Initiative here that we started almost a decade ago. And every year we try to bring in speakers to give a voice to um, Indigenous people and the, the impacts that they're feeling from climate change, but also the really profound ways that they're moving forward and addressing the issues. And mm-hmm. um Watt Cloutier is an excellent example of really doing that in, in innovative ways. You co-authored a chapter of a book called Teaching Climate Change in Humanities, in which you discuss the importance of decolonizing climate change research. Can you explain to us what that looks like? Yeah, so when we talk about decolonizing, what, what we're really getting at is that um, in, in that case in particular, we're talking about climate change um, and teaching about time, climate change. And what we're trying to do is indigenize, we could say, in many ways, uh, in this example, uh, indigenize the, the knowledge, the content, the discussion, the frame of reference when we talk about climate change. And so um, 
the idea would be to center their voices, which is why mm-hmm. Kathy and I have long had these speakers come to really um, to get their voices first and foremost and describe what's going on. And so a lot of it looks like that. Um, with decolonization, you, you have to recognize there's this long history of colonialism and imperialism mm-hmm. in indigenous lands and indigenous areas. Um, and so you have to take that into account. It's not just an issue of carbon emissions and climate change. You have to recognize that long history and to try to decenter the same forces and laws and policies that have been part of that and privilege and put first and foremost the indigenous voices. That would be a quick way of saying it. Thank you. And do you find it hard <laughs> to talk to uh, people about decolonizing climate change? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. It is difficult. And in some, not only is it difficult, but you know, some would say that that my position at a major research university like the University of Oregon means that we're, we're part of the problem, not part of the solution. You know? <laughs> so, um, so the very position from which we step into it could be problematic. And so how do you address that? You know, how do you, if, if you're part of the system, how do you challenge the system, right? I mean, it's, yeah. I guess it's fundamental questions about that. But I think we can make the best efforts we can, and we really try to involve students as a fundamental part to bring in different generations and make it about students. So there'll be student respondents in the lecture um, so that um, Sheila will have dialogue with with um, Native students to talk about these issues. I think that's a helpful way in moving forward to to put their voices out there and get them involved in conversations. Mm -hmm. Uh, For those just tuning in, this is DJ Ambush and Morgan Jones. And we're speaking with Mark Carey about the 2021 Climate Change and Indigenous Peoples Lecture. Uh, advocates for the land back movement have said that returning land to Indigenous peoples mitigates climate change. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about Indigenous knowledge or Indigenous land being mm. a solution for climate change. And I think that, for, for me, one way to think about that is... Uh, Indigenous people have long lived in these areas. There's a lot of knowledge that they that they have. They have relationships with the with the land and with each other. Um, and addressing that issue of of land and rights and sovereignty can't be detached from environmental issues and climate issues. So I think it is absolutely fundamental to be thinking about how can we twinly, you know, combine the efforts toward human rights. And environmental rights. Um, so, giving land back is a common is a, is a common thing. Or, you know, sovereignty is what they have lost in so many cases. So, pipelines coming through, mm-hmm. commercial activities, extractive resources are damaging those environments for sure. So, that is incredibly important to empower them. I think that's what Sheila Watt-Cloutier will be talking about tomorrow: is this connection between the human rights and the climate rights, and how to think about those in more complex ways. So, you know, she's in the Arctic is where she's based, and a lot of her work is about ice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because people live with ice. They yeah. live on sea ice. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and to see the complexities of that, to see that ice is, is their home. It's where they interact. Um, some people have called sea ice a beautiful garden. We tend to think of it as maybe if you don't live in that, as a remote 
um, sterile place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very far from what it really is. And so when we get the richness of how people live on the land and how they interact with with ice, as the, the hunting grounds, the fishing grounds, the place where they interact with their kin, where they have their culture, where they have their meals, where they where they live, right? That's uh, that's a really different thing, and I think that's all wrapped up in understanding that connection between land and climate and histories of colonialism. Mm. In practical terms, what do land back efforts look like? Well, it's not. It's a good question. It's not something that I have tons of experience in my, myself in okay. terms of being, it's not my research area. That's not the area that I've been in, but I think that there can be a lot of ways of, of making sure um, what that looks of ensuring that there is a place for indigenous sovereignty and rights to be mm-hmm. able to, to be involved in those. Um, but there's different groups who are involved, right? There's different, there's, there's federal tribes mm-hmm. that are of the movement, uh, there are non-acknowledged tribes, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a variety of different groups um, and trying to get their voices. So I think that there's there's been good movement on it, um, but it's not. I, I can't speak to too many specific examples. Got you, got you. Sheila Wakotie is quoted as saying, "The pandemic has given a pause." A time to reflect on new possibilities it is a time to shift from apathy to empathy and see how we're all we interconnected. What are some of the ways we can show empathy to each other and our planet? I think a key thing is to is to listen and to try to understand where other people are coming from. That you know that's certainly something that she has mentioned. Um, being fundamental in her work when she talks about, you know, she has a long history of, of a petition that she was active with, um, with the Inuit Circumpolar Council, and, and she was, you know, helped spearhead a, a launch to, of this petition to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And what that was is, certainly her involvement and community members' involvement, but it was the relationships that she had built over time with other people Mm. who had come to the Arctic and seen their area, uh, seen the changes, seen the impacts. Not everybody can travel to different places, but I think hearing other people, listening when, when other people speak, because we have a lot of assumptions out there about how people are responding and how people are affected and what she's going to talk about, I assume, um, from knowing her work for a long time, is that this is this is about a lot more than just climate change. Um, and I think when we think about the pandemic, we, we want to be careful to think that people come to that from really different contexts yeah. and really different realities in their own lives and not making assumptions, but really trying to understand and meet people from where they're coming. And I think that's what she wants to help us understand and to explain and that builds the the empathy i think the other thing in terms of the apathy part is climate change right now has become such a big issue and we're kind of frozen i see this with my students Mm -hmm. all the time is that they're not sure what to do and they're they're depressed Mm. it's such a big issue you don't know where to start and it's such a doom and gloom issue that it's like why bother Um, and what i really appreciate about her framing of this and and tying it into current events right now is 
no, let's, there's things that we can do. There are things that we are doing. Let's move forward with that and let's, let's make efforts and let's have some hope and let's, let's be active here and not just throw up our arms. Mm. I think that's the mm. key parts with both empathy and apathy. Apathy is hard to get around. <laughs> uh, it, it, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> if participants could have, you know, just one big takeaway from the lecture and the summit, summit what would you want it to be? I think my biggest takeaway would be I want Sheila to have the final word and let her be the one to, to give us what that takeaway is. Mm. That, that if we're going to think about human rights, in the Arctic or for indigenous people, if we're going to think about climate change, let, let's hear what she has to say mm. and let's have her give us that, that message. Um, I love it. You know, that's, that's the important thing. That's the whole point of having her speak. But I, you know, in my own perspective, I think we just need more voices in it and we need more hope and we need more optimism and we need more pathways forward because as you just said you know apathy is hard to get around and it's um it seems daunting and when we're all at home and we're interacting with each other less it might seem even more that way so i think inspiration might be my biggest hope but i would really like her to be able to define that and tailor it nice i love it yeah how can listeners sign up for your lecture for the lecture yeah, so uh, Beyond Toxics is the one who's hosting it um, on their platform. So if you were to go to beyondtoxics.org, they have a, a link right there on the page where you can register for her talk. It's open to anyone. Well, we already have hundreds of people who have signed up, so I think this is going to be really exciting. Um, so right there on beyondtoxics.org is the, the easiest way to to register before the event starting at noon, although the Pathways Environmental Justice Pathways Summit starts at 10 o'clock even earlier with some introductory remarks. Excellent. Excellent. All right, guys, you have heard it. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you both very much for for the conversation and for uh, giving some attention to the issue. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks to Mark for joining The Local. And a special thanks to our production team, Executive Editor Will Romy, Supporting Editors and Writers John Collier, Nebraska Lucas, Joey McClone, Brian Miller, Carlos Molina, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Miranda Selinger, Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiazzi. I'm Emily Gilliland. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving us your five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you Monday. Next round.